Welcome to the second day of this uh, workshop. My name is Afe Adogame, uh, the co-host of this event. And uh, incidentally, uh, our first speaker today is also a co-host of this event. And uh, it's my pleasure to, to welcome uh, Professor David Daniels, uh, who holds the Harry Winters Luce Professorship of World Christianity at the McCormick uh, Theological Seminary. Uh, I would say that, well, you, you have the introduction a bit, the bio data, which we put up. So I wouldn't, uh, I'm just, I can't wait to listen to the talk itself. So, uh, but just to add two footnotes, uh, to say that this idea uh, behind a workshop for, on African Christians and the reformations uh, came up, yeah, maybe more than a year ago uh, when we, but we're attending a conference in Germany organized by another participant who will be speaking later. And uh, uh, David has really been the, the power behind this, uh, the power behind the scenes. Uh, and uh, I'm so excited that you are here. Uh, the second point I want to quickly make is that for some of you who may not have known, uh, there is a, a, a short story that, is, that has gone viral uh, which uh, was put together by David uh, just shortly before coming here. And uh, the title is Honor the Reformation's African Roots. And we are told that over uh, 10,000 people uh, have uh, responded to that, uh, which is quite uh, uh, exciting. And uh, just to whet your appetite, I, I would just uh, quote two sentences from that story. And... Uh, among what he said in this article was that Luther esteemed the Church of Ethiopia because he thought Ethiopia was the first nation in, in history to convert to Christianity, unquote. Located in Africa, beyond the orbit of the Roman Catholic Church, this first Christian kingdom, according to Luther, served as an older, wiser, black sibling to the white Christian kingdoms of Europe, unquote. In a sense, the Church of Ethiopia was the dream, quote and unquote, for Luther, a true forerunner of Protestantism. And finally, he said, Luther's theological fascination with the Ethiopian church was illuminating in 1534 in his face-to-face -face dialogue with an Ethiopian cleric, Michael the Deacon, where Luther tested out his theological portrait of the Ethiopian church. And I think this is a good transition to the topic, Martin Luther, Michael the Deacon, and Ethiopian Christianity. So we look forward to you. I want to um, thank, first of all, Dr. Adagame, along with Dr. Yolanda Pierce, who did all the work around this, and then, of course, convincing the dean, the president, and his department. Um, and I do think this is timely, and it's timely for an institution like Princeton to be connected with this. I also want to say, my wife retired on March 1st, so she can travel with me. So she's been <laughs> able to, to come and uh, be at the conference. So I'm excited that she's here, Reverend Dr. Dolores Brown Daniels. Um, did everyone get the handout? Everyone got it? Perfect, perfect. Um, uh, be before I go forward, um, on, on one side of the handout, there's this letter from Martin Luther 
Um, it's dated now, I believe. The English is probably dated. Um, but I'm delighted over lunch, uh, Dr. Paul Roram said that we might be able to get a fresh translation, or if there's one already, might be able to bring that forth. And that, so that would be a contribution of itself. So in today's uh, presentation, I'd like to propose four bold claims about Martin Luther and the Ethiopian Christianity. And um, you have them in front of you. Uh, but let me warn you, the boldness of each claim increases from the first to the fourth. So some of you might be willing to sign off on the first one, on the second one, Maybe on the third when you think I've gone too far, and maybe on the fourth when you think I'm out of my mind. <laughs> I should also give a disclaimer. I come at this um, as a scholar of world Christianity. Um, I do not come at this topic as a Luther scholar, nor a Reformation scholar, nor a 16th century uh, scholar. Um, but I'm focusing in world Christianity. And as a scholarly discipline, world Christianity broaches Luther's writings with a novel set of questions, pursuing a new inquiry of scholarly investigation. These questions wrestle with how to lodge the Protestant Reformation within world Christianity, seeking to uncover the Christian influences upon the Reformation that could come from beyond Europe itself. Um, some people call it provincializing Europe, um, making Europe local and then seeing influences that are coming globally. And that's one of the tasks of world Christianity. Um, the objective is to discuss the Reformation as more than a solely European production as more than a product of Western civilization. As Dr. Adegami says, since Saturday, October 21st, which is only a few weeks ago, there's been a debate on the internet about this Michael the Deacon, about Ethiopian Christianity and Luther. And I think that's a great way to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I also want to note that um, I'm not um, finding this by myself. Um, so this is not a, a, something that um, has not been part of scholarly work, but it's something that I don't think has gotten a lot of attention, really hasn't gotten much attention. And surprisingly, um, probably one of the most famous Luther scholar, Martin Brech, um, has within his three volumes one paragraph on who he calls the Ethiopian cleric. He, otherwise, he's nameless. And then he describes a little bit about the encounter. So if someone really wanted to find these um, African, Europe, Ethiopian, German influences, your average scholar of Luther knows this already if they paid attention to that paragraph, which is on page 59 of the third volume, which I have um, noted. Um, but there's also, those of you who are Lutheran might recall George Posfe, who was uh, executive within the, the Lutheran World Federation. Um, and so he's a Hungarian, but he also writes about this um, and then Thomas, Tom G.A. Hart is Swedish, and he also writes about this supposedly as early as the uh, late 50s, early 60s. Um, and then um, Mark Ellison uh, mentions Luther and Ethiopian Christianity, Coptic, he describes it as, and then Martin um, Wittenberg or Wittenberg. Um, so there's scholars that, that one can make this argument who've already plowed this field. And they've made it easier for me because I'm not a Luther scholar. They've raised a context. I will say what my contribution is is to talk about um, Luther's narrative of Ethiopia and then Luther's sort of theology um, that is informed by Ethiopia. I, didn't find, I haven't found anybody who's done that. So that's my contribution. The Michael the Deacon part and the um, full communion um, has already been um, discussed. Um, so these scholars, who also, then scholars who also want to include 
African Christians and Ethiopian Christianity in the study of the Protestant Reformation realized that the standard narratives of the Reformation, which portray the Reformation as a solely European event, would have to be revised. We can glean then from these scholars that I just mentioned and we go into their footnotes and then figure out ways to either restructure the narrative or begin anew. Um, so if Luther did express interest in Ethiopia, I use the word fascination, um, was he unique? Luther lived in an era when interest in Ethiopian Christianity existed. Before and after 1517, Erasmus of Rotterdam, Thomas More, and Pope Clement VII is just three of the people um, who express interest in the church in Ethiopia. Um, Ethiopian expatriate communities existed in Rome, Venice, Cyprus, Jerusalem, and some even say Istanbul and Florence. I haven't been able to verify that. So Ethiopians are around at least this southern, this Mediterranean world, and as far north as Venice. And as you know, it doesn't take long to go from Venice to Germany. Um, in Luther's works, um, I, I work my way through trying to make sure the English translation looks like the German, but I really don't read German. Um, so I'm heavily dependent upon English. And so the 55 volumes in Luther's works do not include these accounts of Michael the Deacon. They do not include the letter from July 7th or July 4th. Um, they do not include Melanchthon's um, letter. They do not include the comments from the table talks. You only can find those in Latin or, or German. Um, for whatever reason, the translators did not decide to include those. Uh, but if one is only focused on the English translation, then there's at least 85 mentions of Ethiopia by Luther with references both to ancient places and issues. And then at least 15 mentions refer to contemporary empire of Christian Ethiopia. And from these scattered comments, I want to argue that a historical arc and outline to Luther's narrative of Ethiopian Christianity could be reconstructed. We might call it an implied narrative. We might call it uh, an assumed narrative. We might call it an inherited narrative. Um, a few selected quotes offer a sample of Luther's perspectives. And I think you have the quotes with you. The the, this is of the 80, um, I'm sorry. So, so there's also interest because the Ethiopic Psalter was uh, printed uh, in 1513 in Rome, uh, and then printed a little later in Germany. And then the New Testament was printed in 1545. And so again, there's this interest that's there. So the four quotes. Um, and these are four out of the, I'm sorry, five out of the 85. First, most of the time when mention is made of the nations that are to be, to be converted to Christ, this is prophecy, the Ethiopians are singled out for mention. Second one, for the Ethiopians denote those who have the ardent faith. And this was both in the Psalms, um, the, the, the commentary on Psalms, as well as Song of Solomon, which is um, written, uh, or at least out, about 20 years later. Uh, the people of the Ethiopians are said to be the church of the Gentiles. Next, and thus Ethiopia denotes the church of the Gentiles. And then finally, but the church is symbolized and called by the name Ethiopia. So let me state my claims. And again, you have them before you. First, in 1534, Martin Luther had a theological conversation with the Ethiopian cleric named Michael the Deacon. Second, after this theological conversation, Martin Luther extended full communion to Michael the Deacon and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Three, 
And, th and these are, again, building on other people's works. Three, within Luther's scattered mentions of Ethiopia lies an assumed or an implicit historical narrative of Ethiopian Christianity that holds Ethiopian Christianity in high esteem. And then four, for Luther, the church in Ethiopia was a model church or one of his dream churches. So let's go to the first claim. So in 1534, Martin Luther had a theological conversation with an Ethiopian cleric named Michael the Deacon. If Michael the Deacon holds, um, if Michael the Deacon gets added to the roster of histor a Reformation historical figures, I will consider that a scholarly victory. So my goal initially is quite modest. Um, for those of you who haven't read about Michael the Deacon, Michael the Deacon was an Ethiopian cleric who meets Martin Luther in Wittenberg um, during 1534. It looks like it's in the spring of 1534. Um, the renowned Luther scholar uh, Martin Brech captures this encounter in one paragraph in the third volume of his classic, Martin Luther, The Preservation of the Church, 1532 to 1546, on page 59, which um, this volume he published in German in 1985, and his English translation was published in 1993. Brecht concludes, the appearance of an Ethiopian cleric in Wittenberg in 1534 was a unique event. By 1534, Luther, well-established in Wittenberg, had engaged in dialogue with other Protestant reformers and Roman Catholic leaders. In that year, Luther welcomed Michael the Deacon, an Ethiopian cleric, as a new voice in his ecumenical dialogues. At this point, we know very little about Michael the Deacon. Um, we have, though, a lot of, we have, though, more questions than answers. Was he sent as an official representative of the Ethiopian church to open channels between Luther and the church in Ethiopia? Was he sent um, as an official representative of one of the Ethiopian expatriate communities, whether Jerusalem, Cyprus, Rome, or Venice? Was he a member of a discredited reform movement, the Stephanites, um, within Ethiopian Christianity, searching for potential allies? Or was he simply an isolated, isolated individual deciding to tour um, that part of Europe, and somebody told him there's this famous guy in, in Wittenberg, and if he meets you, it'll be a great thing to do. So those are the questions we have, and we don't know what he, who he is and what was, he was up to, but we do, I think, have some clues to what Luther was up to. So what do we know then besides his name, his nationality, his religion, his clerical status, is that Martin Luther embraced him. Not only was Luther willing to meet with him, it looks like he was excited about the conversation because this was a theological conversation. So according to Martin Brech, Thomas G. Hart, George Posfey, an Ethiopian cleric named Michael the Deacon visited Luther in 1534. Luther's face-to-face -face encounter with this Ethiopian deacon, Michael, allowed Luther to test out his beliefs, this is the thesis, about Ethiopian Christianity being a forerunner of Protestantism and possibly even being theologically equivalent. As Tom Hart notes, in order for Luther and Michael um, to engage in this theological conversation, um, they had to overcome Luther's inability to speak Amharic or even Arabic, and Michael's inability to speak German. So a recruiter, uh, sorry, interpreter was recruited who spoke um, Greek and Italian, languages that Michael the deacon at least had a limited conversational ability to speak and comprehend. That might mean that he's either from Venice Cyprus, which is part of the Venetian Empire, or from Rome. Um, Luther recalled that this is, it's dated 1538, but 
he's probably off by a year. Luther says, three years ago, there was an Ethiopian monk with us here and with whom we had discussions through an interpreter. And having finished with all our articles, the, 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 article, the Wittenberg articles, um, Michael the Deacon says, this is a good creed. This is faith, unquote. Earlier, um, Luther had elaborated on this encounter. And that's part of your handout. Um, and I think we could really take the whole time just discussing the letter. Um, but I'll just read it um, be, in order to just make the point. There, there has been with us in Germany, and, and it, you, you, you can't imagine how exciting it is for a world Christianity scholar to actually find a global link. Um, there, there has been with us in Germany the Reverend Michael the Ethiopian, a deacon, conversing privately with him concerning Christian doctrine. We have heard that he properly agrees with the symbol which the Western church holds, and that he does not think differently about the Trinity than what the Western church thinks. Therefore, we commend him to good people as much as we surely can. For although the Eastern Church has several dissimilar ceremonies, he judges that their dissimilarity, this is Michael the Deacon, that their dissimilarity does not nullify the unity of the church and does not mitigate, um, uh, militate against the faith. Since the kingdom of Christ is the spiritual righteousness of the heart, the fear of God, and confidence through Christ. We also think this opinion is right. So now Luther is co-signing, as the young people would say, um, Michael the deacon's words. Um, we have also learned from him that the right which we observe in the use of the administration of the Lord's Supper and the Mass agrees with the Eastern Church. We wish, moreover, that all peoples would acknowledge and glorify Christ and would submit to him, meaning Christ, with true confidence in his mercy and with love for one's neighbor. For this reason, we ask that good people would demonstrate Christian love also to this visitor. Um, in this internet conversation, there are people on the Orthodox side saying, um, he's obviously an heir. How could they agree? Um, but the point is, as an historian, I can't second guess what we know uh, 50 years later or what other people know. All I can do is to try to say what Luther thought. Because the question is, how did this conversation influence Luther? Even if Michael the deacon misunderstood, or he was misunderstood, that's really immaterial. What's the point is, is that Luther thought there was an agreement. Um, so recalling this dialogue, as I said, we have also learned from him. Um, I mean, I I'm not sure if in this era that we went through and hopefully are out of modern racism, that a famous German theologian would say what he learned from someone from the Global South. Um, and then he goes on from there. Um, so George Posfe concluded, quote, both Luther and Melanchthon were anxious, this is obviously his assessment, to talk to this man, Michael the Deacon, to get information about the doctrines which were held as Christian truths in his, the Ethiopian home country. So significance. So what's the historical significance of this theological education between Luther and Michael the Deacon? From the perspective of world Christianity, this is historically significant because an Ethiopian Christian representing what we, know, what we now call Africa and the Global South travels to Europe to discuss the new Protestant theology with one of the leading Protestant reformers, Martin Luther. Michael the Deacon agreed with the Wittenberg, Wittenberg articles as being consistent with the Ethiopian Christianity. Um, this is important because this is the beginning of Lutheran Orthodox or Luther uh, Coptic um, ecumenical relations. Um, I'm not going to get the date right, but the standard argument that it's not until 1560, around that period of time, a conversation with the 
uh, patriarch or, uh, of Constantinople, I believe. So this pushes it back a lot earlier. Um, and then lastly, around this significance, um, this encounter between Africa and Europe, um, or Ethiopia, um, or an African being in Europe. The narrative of this period is so overwhelmed by um, the transatlantic slave trade and the doctrine of discovery that we can only find Africans on the ships in the Americas or in Africa. But this isn't a story about Europeans going to Africa. This is a story about Africans going to Europe. And some of you might know that there's a group of scholars who say that within the early uh, 15th century, somewhere from 100 to 200,000 Africans lived in Europe, in addition to these Ethiopians. Um, most of them were in the Iberian Peninsula. Um, as Dr. Britton um, mentions the notes in his work, some of them were in England. Um, and then a smaller group um, are in Italy and in, um, or in Italy. Let's go to the second claim. After this theological conversation, Michael, uh, sorry, Martin Luther extended full communion to Michael the deacon and the Ethiopian church, Ethiopian Orthodox church. So Luther, as Tom Hart noted, extended full communion to Michael the deacon and the Ethiopian church, an invitation that Luther, of course, withheld from the Bohemian brothers, brethren, or the Hussites, and the Reformed churches connected with Zwingli. Luther would not enter in full communion with the Bohemian brothers, um, a Bohemian, a Bohemian brethren, because the, they sometimes allow Catholic bishops to ordain their clergy. And he would not, of course, agree with Zwingli because there are differences on um, sacrament, of communion in particular. After um, interviewing uh, Michael the deacon, Luther authorized that Philip Melanchthon write on his behalf an ecclesial letter of recommendation. According to George Posfay, Luther concluded that the Ethiopian church should be included in, this is Posfay's word, the communion of believers, unquote. He added, Luther felt himself and all evangelicals in Germany united in faith with this, the Ethiopian church, as well as um, being a, uh, these are my words, a, um, a uh, equivalent that is a predecessor to Protestantism. So if so, then historical reconstruction of Luther's theological engagement of the Ethiopian Christianity espoused in this lecture might be less speculative than it first appears. Let me give a, a little longer um, quote from George Posfay. Both, both Luther and Melanchthon were anxious, um, as I said, to talk to this man, Michael the Deacon, to get information about the doctrines which were held as Christian truths in his home church. As a result of his colloquium, Luther could say that his conception of the Oriental churches were confirmed by the statements of Michael the deacon, or Deacon Michael, he calls them. Of course, the cardinal question for Luther was the inquiry whether the gospel of Christ was in the center of the life and teaching of the Church of Ethiopia. He knew already from previous studies that this community did not accept the authority of the Pope. But after his talk with his guests from Africa, another thesis of his historical studies received an illumination, uh, sorry, an illustration. He could now say, this again, Paul's voice speaking, that most of the deficiencies of the church in the West were related to her subordination to the papacy. By contrast, in the East, where the papacy had no power, these deficiencies were missing. With great satisfaction, Luther recorded the information that among the Christians in Ethiopia, and then I delete a section and move on, their order of service generally corresponded to that of the evangelical congregations of Germany. Their acceptance of the ancient Christian creeds, as well as their understanding of the main articles of Christian faith, in harmony with the gospel, 
was also important signs for Luther that the Christians of Ethiopia were true members of the universal church. So if Tom G.A. Hart and George Posfey are correct that Luther extended full communion to Michael the deacon and the Ethiopian church while withholding full communion from the Bohemian brothers and the Reformed churches connected with Zwingli, what does this tell us about Luther's view of the church in Ethiopia? Seemingly, within Luther's ranking of churches, the church in Ethiopia ranked higher than the Bohemian Brethren and the Reformed churches connected with Zwingli. From the perspective of world Christianity, Luther's churches in Europe and the Ethiopian churches in Africa were on par, both being superior to Roman Catholicism and to other Protestant churches. Third claim. Within Luther's scattered mentions of Ethiopia lies an assumed or implicit historical narrative of Ethiopian Christianity that holds Ethiopian Christianity in high esteem. Now, I, I must admit, this is the, the I am out on a limb. Um, some, of, some people would not concede that you can read a text within a text or a text behind a text. They only want, they're fundamentalists. They only want to talk about the text they, that's at hand. I'm suggesting that, that these scattered mentions, um, if you piece them together, you get a story. You get a, a storyline. And that this storyline then has this influence. So this is the part where I might lose some of you. So why was it important for Luther to identify or recognize Ethiopian Christianity? What was the significance of Ethiopia in Luther's history of Christianity? What was the significance of Ethiopia in Luther's theology? What might this recognition add to our interpretations of Luther, Luther's theology? And what role might Ethiopia have played in the formation of early Protestantism? And again, um, th there's criticism in this internet discussion on the fact that this is an imaginary Ethiopia in Luther's mind. Even though it gets tested by Michael the deacon, he doesn't have firsthand knowledge of Ethiopia. Um, he's not dealing with uh, Ethiopian texts and, and, and histories to make his point. But again, that seemingly is immaterial for an historian um, who's trying to figure out what Luther thought, might have thought, and how it impacted him. And focusing on Luther as an occasional theological historian, we can reconstruct his historical narrative from the fragmentary or scattered discussions. Collectively, the fragments offer an outline of historical narrative. They gesture towards an assumed narrative or an implicit narrative or an inherited narrative. While a clear narrative might have been in Luther's mind, as an occasional theological historian, he never wrote it out in a full narrative. I suspect Luther relied heavily, and then um, he clearly is reading Jerome. Um, I'm not sure how much he reads of Josephus and um, uh, Eusebius, um, so therefore I need to talk to Luther scholars about that. Um, but, but he's getting these ideas um, that I think are, are not unique um, to him. Um, although fragmentary, these paragraphs in Luther's writings on Ethiopian church history collectively tell us the story. Luther included the Ethiopians in his narrative of the first Christians. Luther stated that it should be known, however, that most of the time when mention is made of the nations that are to be converted to Christ, the Ethiopians are singled out for mention. According to Luther, either one or two of the wise men who came to the newborn Christ, unquote, were from Ethiopia. Luther credited an Ethiopian with teaching the Samaritans after Philip had converted them. And according to Luther, 
Matthew and his companions introduced the gospel to Ethiopia as well as Arabia, Edom, and Egypt. The church in Ethiopia also represented the gospel reaching the edge of the inhabited earth since Ethiopians were deemed the far or, quote, the distant people for whom the gospel has reached, unquote. Fulfilling the prophecy of the gospel of the great, quote, gathering into the church of Christ through faith, unquote. With, within the first centuries of Christianity, Ethiopia was a place where the desert fathers, and we would now add mothers, um, would sojourn. According to Luther, he applauded the deserts of Ethiopia as a site where, quote, no one has ever demonstrated greater zeal in coming to God than the dear fathers in the deserts of Egypt and Ethiopia. To Luther, quote, the Ethiopians denote those who have the ardent faith, unquote. They were classified, quote, as those who are most fervent in their faith in Christ and are nearest to him and he to them. Um, Luther even recognized the existence of, quote, black Jews who are now Ethiopian, unquote, linking Israel and Ethiopia as a people. In a sense, Ethiopia played a double role in Luther's historical narrative. They were both black Jews who professed Jesus as the Messiah and the first Gentiles to confess Christ as Savior. Luther noted, quote, for those lands lie south of Jerusalem are of many colors. That is black, red, and white. So I'm not overstating things when I add color um, to the people in this area because Luther adds color. Um, but the color is not derogatory. Um, for Luther, Christian Ethiopia was a black kingdom um, um, in that part of the continent. Africa, of course, is, is the, the northern part of Africa. And so they, he wouldn't have called it Africa. I mean, he wouldn't have called it Africa. He recognized that humanity consisted of people of different colors. Christian Ethiopia, as this black kingdom, served as an older sibling, a big brother or sister to the European Christian kingdoms. This is due to the heritage of Christian Ethiopia, including the biblical Ethiopia of the Hebrew Bible, the ancient Christian kingdom of Ethiopia in the New Testament, and of the first centuries. The rich biblical and early Christian heritage possessed by Ethiopia was absent. They don't have the longevity of Germany, France, uh, or they have a longevity that Germany, France, and Scandinavia do not have. Um, Luther stated, it should be known, uh, uh, however, that most of the time, as I said earlier, when mention is made of the nations that have been converted to Christ, the Ethiopians are singled out for mention. So when that is said prophetically in Psalm 87, in Psalm 72, then when it actually happens in the New Testament, it's this fulfillment of prophecy. So Ethiopia, by converting to Christianity, fulfilled that prophecy um, in Psalm 87. Um, Ethiopia shall stretch forth her wings. I think it's the Latin numbering. Um, the church in Ethiopia also represented the spread of the gospel across the inhabited earth. Since Ethiopians were deemed the far or, quote, dis, uh, dis, distant people whom the gospel has reached, Luther's use of Ethiopia fits into the scholar Gabe Byron's echoing of Frank Snowden, quote, a motif in language of conversion and as a means for emphasizing their conviction that Christianity was to include all humanity, unquote. Being a Christian nation or kingdom prior to the Roman Empire, according to Luther, the Ethiopian Christianity remained outside of the authority of the Roman Catholic Pope, and then, in his estimation, uncorrupted by Christianity in Europe and the Roman papacy. Ethiopian Christianity, according to Luther's narrative, um, possessed apostolic practices, which were no longer practiced in the Roman Catholic Church, and practices that were later adopted um, by Protestants through their Protestant reading of scripture. So for Luther, then, this Ethiopian and Orthodox churches blazed the trails for Protestants. As churches outside the authority of the Roman Catholic Pope, 
these churches were central to Luther's argument for the legitimacy of Protestant ecclesiology. In the, quote, defense and the explanation of all the articles, unquote, Luther cited Greeks, Africa, and the Orient as places where the church existed legitimately outside the authority of the Roman Pope. The Ethiopian and other Orthodox churches then anticipated Protestantism, at least in my read of Luther. I believe then that the dialogue between Luther and Michael the Deacon is historically significant in light of this. So for historical studies, it maybe should be ranked on par with his colloquy with Zwingli, that this ecumenical dialogue between Christian Ethiopia and Europe challenges in these narratives that the Reformation was totally the product of Western civilization. It also counters other narr narratives that place Europeans in Africa only, but not studying Africans in 16th century Europe. And now the last section. So the fourth and last claim. For Luther, the church in Ethiopia was a model or one of his dream churches. So um, so on your paper, if you look at the, the last quote that says, but the church is symbolized and called by the name Ethiopia, I think I put the order wrong. So you can also look up there. Um, so while all of these statements possess theological implications, it is Luther's narrative of Ethiopia, I want to argue, and his purposes in invoking Ethiopia that should attract the attention of scholars. Luther proclaimed, as you see, the church is symbolized and called by the name Ethiopia. Um, and he confers then on Ethiopia biblical, theological, historical, and ecclesial significance. So as we've already said prophetically, the Hebrew Bible included prophecies of Ethiopia being among the first nations to convert in, in, in Luther's Christological reading of the Bible. As stated above, um, they were singled out for mention. So to Luther, Ethiopia was first, were the first Gentiles and the first nation to convert to Christianity. To say it another way is for Luther to say that the Christian church is symbolized and called by the name Ethiopia apparently reflects his belief that the first Gentile to convert in, um, to, to Christianity was the Ethiopian profiled in Acts chapter 8. Interestingly, most of the time when um, Luther refers to this Ethiopian, he calls him Ethiopian Chamberlain or Ethiopian, I think, cap captain or treasurer. And he does that because he wants to use the Ethiopian as a critique against the Anabaptists. Because if this person who is a captain He's in the military, means he bears arms. And if um, Candace, the queen, uh, is reigning, then you have to protect your empire. And so, so there's other things that he's doing with that. We, of course, only want to call him the Ethiopian eunuch. So why are we so fixated on calling him a eunuch when Luther is more focused on calling him by his office for another day? So to Luther, then, they are the first Gentiles and the first nation to convert. Um, the church is to be called by the name Ethiopia. Um, and though, of course, Luther is excused for not knowing that the fourth century dating of modern historians of the emergence of Christianity in Ethiopia, um, how could he have known that? Um, we probably only knew that in the last 200 years. 
Um, but, but again, on this internet conversation, people are challenging Luther on the wrong dating. Um, historians, though, should explore how Luther's historical narrative of Ethiopia and image of Ethiopia as the church informs his ecclesiology. As these quotes indicate, Luther held the Ethiopian church in great esteem. Unmarred by, by Christianity in Europe and the papacy, Ethiopian Christianity, according to Luther's narrative, this is according to my uh, conjecture, possessed these apostolic uh, practices. And there's other people that also want to lift us up. And again, on the internet, people are saying, well, it was in, it was in Gez, and Gez was not the everyday language. Amharic was. Again, we know that now, but people in the 16th century, at least in, in Germany, didn't know that. So they thought the Bible was in the vernacular. Um, and they had communion in both kinds. Um, and they had married clergy. And then um, they did not have the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. They did not have indulgences. They did not have purgatory. And they did not have marriage as a sacrament. Um, there's also someone questioning on that. Um, for Luther, the church in Ethiopia possessed then more fidelity to the Christian tradition and practices mentioned above that were marks of that fidelity. Thus, the church in Ethiopia needed to be reformed, again, this is my conjecture, in the direction of the church in Ethiopia. Again, in the letter that you have in front of you, he realizes that there's ceremonies that are different. Um, so he's not asking the church to copy. Um, possibly for Luther, the church in Ethiopia was, and this is quite a claim, historical proof that his reform of the church in Europe possessed then both a biblical basis, which is the sola scriptura, and then maybe even an historical basis. With the church being called Ethiopia, the Ethiopian church became a symbol of Christianity rather than merely the edge of Christendom. At this, 19, sorry, at this 1534 dialogue, Luther finally had the opportunity to figure out whether his attractive theological portrait of Ethiopian Christianity was historically credible. What appears clear is that Luther deployed an understanding of Ethiopian Christianity within his writings. Whether he goes as far as I'm suggesting is up for debate. From these discussions, it appears that Luther did, did make connections between his Protestant reforms and the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia. Um, by scholars then widening their view of Luther's horizons, they can experiment, we can experiment, with narratives of the Reformation that incorporate Luther's Ethiopia, the account and dialogue with Michael the deacon, into the story. Um, and then maybe even including Ethiopian Christianity as a forerunner. Let us then um, consider Luther's ranking of these churches, as I mentioned earlier. So he inverts then this Catholic ranking. The Roman Catholic Church um, was, the, was the embodiment of the truth. The Orthodoxy was next. And of course, Protestants were illegitimate. Um, Luther then makes Protestants the, the epitome. But the Orthodox, at least the Ethiopian Orthodox, are on par with them. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church um, was seen uh, as corrupt. Luther's ideal Christianity then, based on scripture, was better expressed by the Orthodox churches, albeit not fully, than the Roman Catholic Church. And of the two historic branches of the Christian faith, the Orthodox way of being Christian was preferred over the Roman Catholic way. And of the Orthodox churches, the Ethiopian church ranked the highest because of its lineage going back to the Hebrew Bible, to being an ancient Christian, having ancient Christian heritage, and an ancient Christian witness. 
So as stated above, Ethiopian Christianity, Ethiopian Christianity, according to Luther's narrative, if I'm correct, possess these apostolic practices that Protestants will adopt. To Luther, honor belongs to the Ethiopian church, and shame belongs to, Roman, to the Roman Catholic Church. Luther then projects a positive, valued, esteemed, empowered image of Orthodox Ethiopia over against his unflattering, contemptible image of Catholic Europe. Catholic Europe was corrupt. The Orthodox Ethiopian was the paragon of the Christian faith. So let me restate the claims first. In 1534, Martin Luther had a theological conversation with the Ethiopian cleric named Michael the Deacon. Second, after this theological conversation, Martin Luther extended full communion to Michael the Deacon and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Third, within Luther's scattered mentions of Ethiopia lies an assumed or implicit narrative of Ethiopian Christianity that holds Ethiopian Christianity in high esteem. And fourth, for Luther, the church in Ethiopia was a model church or one of his dream churches. Could Ethiopian Christianity envisioned by Luther have really influenced the making of the Reformation? Could Luther have made connections between his reforms and the church in Ethiopia? Could Luther's envisioned Ethiopian Christianity be cast as a forerunner of the Protestant Reformation? These are the intriguing questions I believe that research should pursue um, as we finish commemorating the Protestant Reformation, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Thank you. <laughs>